every other horror trope has kind of been played for blockbuster money at this point, right? We've got right. zombies, we've got vampires, we've got uh, ghosts, we've got creatures from the Black Lagoons are winning Oscars. Like, Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, I'm, let's just get into it. We were we were pretty dry on content. This episode almost didn't happen because I couldn't think of a single thing. I even consulted friend of the podcast, podcast alumni Richard. If there's anything he could think of, and of course he just gave me very unhelpful joke answers. That's, um, a, that's a great way to start the podcast with, we've got <laughs> nothing for you this week. We almost had nothing for you this week, but friend of the podcast, Patrick, who was recently a guest, did end up sending us a letter. So we're okay. going to start at the top of the show with that. Um, his response to our Suicide Squad Green Knight episode, I think the last one he watched or listened to. Um, mm. So he responds Which to I, that. I, before we get, well, I don't know. Well, he, I'll hear his letter first and then I'll, I'll say. Yeah, you definitely should wait. And then we're, uh, we're going to cover some movie news as well, which there ha- happened to be more of than I realized. So okay. that ended up saving the day. And then we're going to get into our reviews of Malignant, which is uh, available on HBO Max and in theaters. And on Tubi, we watched uh, the 1983 Suburbia. So this is what Patrick had to say about uh, our Suicide Squad Green Knight episode. Um, first, he made fun of you and me for our medical conditions that episode, which was <laughs> we we were a little bit of a mess. Specifically, I, I was recovering from a bloody nose. You had just recovered from COVID-19. Um, and then he goes in to say the suicide squad and green Knight show was a roller coaster for me. I think I agree with Cass. I'm burned out on superhero films. Now I don't know if he means all superhero films or if he just means what we talked about in that episode, but he goes on to say, I'm totally burned out in films that try to satirize the genre. So kind of what I was saying with, with suicide squad, the snarky superhero movies, uh, they all feel hollow to me, and worse, the wink and nodding makes me hear the thud when they hit hollow. He says, I will watch the shit out of a Moon Knight series, though, if it's helmed or if helmed by the writers of Endless and Rendition horror films. Have you seen those? If not, you should. I, I don't think I have. I don't know what he's referencing there. Maybe that was... I know we we talked about Moon Knight news a while back. I don't remember all the ins and outs of that. Maybe it's already passed through some different hands by now. But I, I believe it's supposed to. Um, it's not even supposed to premiere till like next year. Okay, but it's in the production. It's happening. Yeah, yeah. There's there was like some leaked screenshots of maybe his costume. Yeah, who knows? Uh, yeah, I take all that shit with a grain of salt. As you should. He says here. I thought Green Knight was a faithful adaptation of the legend, 
It was disjointed and understated, just like the work was written. I am not shocked that it dissatisfied many who expected Lord of the Rings. Have either of you m- read much Arthurian legend or European folktales? Um, okay. Just- I see what's happening here. <laughs> yes, you do. He says, it was shot wonderfully with so much nature woven yeah, into the scenes. You're just, you're just reading his letter because it agrees with everything you said. <laughs> he goes on. He says, too long, though. Both of these films were too damn long. I cannot recommend you two watching Paths. I think he means I cannot recommend enough uh, you two watching Paths of Glory. Uh, you should watch some old shit and review it, too. It's not free streaming. Sorry. Yes, we are aware that you want us to watch that, and we are going to try. I've had the Blu-ray for a long time. I've been waiting for an excuse to watch it. Um, so when it does pop up on one of the services we use for our streaming homework, I will be sure to get on that. And then lastly, he says, here's some recommendations for Halloween. Uh, these are seven horror films I've watched recently. Some good, some bad. I watched or rewatched before. And he mentions The Hidden, Return of the Living Dead, Beyond the Black Rainbow, The Bay, Phase 4, The Color of Outer Space, and The Wailing. Um, We've definitely seen Return of the Living Dead. That was kind of a staple in our household when we lived together. Yeah. Beyond the Black Rainbow, I've seen. The others are, you know, definitely uh, we'll take into consideration. Yeah, yeah. Um, The spooky season is almost upon us, so Mm -hmm. uh, we'll probably hit up at least a couple of those. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. That's fine that Patrick agreed with you. That's fine. That's usually not the case, by the way. Usually, even if I make the much clearer, better argument, he'll always take the other person's okay. side. But, um, and so especially that... when it comes to the to the comic book stuff, usually, you know, he always kind of goes with, so with, with you on that. That episode in particular mm-hmm. is one of my least favorite episodes we've ever done. <laughs> and it's not that because you disagreed with me. Uh-huh. Uh, it's fine that you didn't like it as much as I did. I really liked it. I What frustrated me was you spent the whole time ranting about what you hated about it. That I didn't feel like I got to say any of the things I did like about it. I felt like, I don't know, you were just going off. And I was like, okay, right. well, I guess this is our review. Well, Okay, so th- here's what I think. Sometimes this happens in because of the format of the show, mm-hmm. where we're only allotted a certain amount of time to talk about these movies or whatever. Um, only allotted a certain amount of time. Fuck you. This is like, <laughs> we make this shit up as we go. It well, could be five hours long. Nobody cares. Right. But, but what ends up happening is that uh, we'll get caught or hung up on a, a disagreement or something. Yeah. And then that'll like end up monopolizing the, the entire review and we never get to, and I'll, all of a sudden I'll remember all these other things I wanted to say. So, you know, here's your, here's your shot. What are some things about the suicide squad that you didn't get to bring up that you okay, liked? Well, about? Now you're, ca- I won't now even catching me off guard. It's been, it's been a while since I've thought about, it. I was going to bring this up on our, uh, our, best of the year because so far it's been one of my favorite movies this year okay I, I, we could we could hold it for that we could I, hold it for that uh, uh-huh. i am not necessarily sick of self-aware superhero stuff i don't know i it it depends to me i i haven't seen anything 
that uh, that has like caught me totally wrong yet though. Uh-huh. Um, but I didn't watch Jupiter's Legacy or whatever. I don't even know what that is. The the Netflix one, the Mark Millar thing. It didn't. Oh, look good. who knows? Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll talk about it another time. I'm sure we will. This is not the last time I will bring up the Suicide Squad on this podcast. I'm sure it isn't. So that's what that's what Patrick had to for us to talk about here at the beginning of the show. Oh, oh, he d- he did uh, he did mention the Green Knight. He mm-hmm. asked if uh, either of us have like read Arthurian um, Arthurian, uh, Arthurian legend. legend or like European folklore. Um, so in my undergrad for my minor my career writing minor mm-hmm. um i got to like take a bunch of really cool classes and i kind of got to make up my own um like course uh and one of the things i took was a folklore and literature class and we got to read a lot of folklore um not all of it european but most a lot of it was yeah so i've read stuff i get what he's saying and and even what you were saying about it, and and maybe it did does kind of come down to the runtime of it. I I might have liked it more had it been a tight ninety. We need to get back to the tight ninety. You know what's funny about that? There's a perception, and I think it's because in part because of the comic book movie thing. Um, but mm-hmm. blockbusters, summer blockbusters, yeah. have been like getting longer and longer as they go to the point where. To the point where the expectation now is to be at least two hours long um, amongst younger viewers, people who didn't grow up regularly watching 80 to 90 minute movies. And that was the norm, mm-hmm. you know, before they but, used to think that people's patience would just start to lose people around the 90 minute mark. So they would always kind of aim for that unless the movie was big enough to kind of mm-hmm. excuse for it. Well, and I now, with the of. death of narrative cinema, all movies are just these long, sprawling TV episodes that are connected to the next TV episode that comes out next summer. And I, I, So, I, I feel like there's kind of two main driving forces behind it. Yeah. Uh, the first is, you. the thing you said, you just said about how movies felt like they had to be 90 minutes unless they were big enough to sort of earn this two-hour mark. I feel like... Right. Uh, but I don't mean big enough necessarily just in, like, set pieces and that stuff, but also narratively big no, enough. I know what you mean, but, like, yeah. more and more movies that are released in theaters, uh, they're trying to make it, you know, everybody's vying for that summer tentpole position. Thing. Yeah. And so... Remember back in 1997 when you went to go see Titanic and there was an intermission because it was... I guess are close to three hours and they let you like go use the bathroom and talk to your friends or whatever, and then come back and watch the boat sink. Now they would just be like, bish, like you're, you're going to sit for this whole damn thing. Well, and nobody I, would even blink an eye. Did any of the Lord of the Rings movies have an intermission? I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, you might be able to sort of like, in a way, like, start there at this becoming like a somewhat of a norm like those were considered long movies but well, they were epic those and like the matrix movies and like yeah but even those are like 210 so there's that there's the yeah. fact that uh, the matrix movies are long like almost three they're like two and a half at the least. first one's not 
No, the first one is not. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. So there's this thing where all of these studios are trying to make their movies bigger and bigger and bigger. They're trying oh. to make them all events. They're all trying to be Avengers Endgame, and you can't all be Avengers Endgame. Right. I'm sorry, you just fucking can't. Added to the fact that everything is streaming now. So, right. like you said, it's it's like, you know, the Harry Potter movies might as well be a TV series at this point. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Uh, because you can just stream one onto the next one onto the next one. And so it's... It's this weird thing of like sort of eternal content of the spotless mind going on here. And so there's less focus on like singular narrative on on just right. making one goddamn movie and pacing and yeah. fucking, you know, yeah. I I mean, this goes into a whole thing, but yeah, I just I've noticed like um there was I was reading fan responses to something and there were there were a bunch of people on reddit or it was on maybe the user reviews on rotten tomato or something they were mad at something because it was shorter than two two and a half or three hours oh yeah yeah and i mean there was I remember, the i remember there was the whole thing with mortal Kombat, but yes. and that was the first time i noticed it but this it came up again recently there there was also a thing with like the snyder cut where uh right amount of screen time equals quality and it's like the fuck it does okay let's anyway. go ahead let's go ahead and get into the movie news because there is a little bit here i didn't well, now you got me worked up i did very easily um, I, I agree with that that movies i i want the tight 90 to come back that should be the standard again i would like to see people make big expensive movies that don't have to be over two hours you can do it. I mean, we need to recondition people's brains to to accept a story that's well told under not under a hundred minutes. I, here's a, if it's a good movie, I don't notice the runtime. Exactly. I'm All glad right. I got to at least voice my grievances about the Suicide Squad episode because that was kind of bugging me for a little bit, actually. <laughs> okay, well, tell me how this hits you. Triplets, a sequel to the 1988 comedy Twins, will see Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito reprise their roles as the long-lost siblings, but now but now SNL and 30 Rock alum Tracy Morgan will join the follow-up as their other long-lost brother. You know what? I was going to predict that the third actor would be black. Yeah, I, you predicted another Twins is no, something no, in like, and of itself. When when you started telling me the story, okay, I was like, who's the third twin? Danny Glover? And then Tracy Morgan? Okay, that makes sense. Uh, sure. <laughs> Did, again, <laughs> does anybody want this? Who fucking knows? Does anybody remember the movie Twins? I mean, I know it exists. Yeah, I, know I remember. I, I think I saw it. But I don't remember a single thing about that movie. Uh, nobody under our age. Nobody yeah. under our age. What is the... Again, it... This is going to be, like, probably like a direct-to-Netflix or, like, a direct-to-Amazon thing or something. Sure. I mean, whatever. Yeah. I I don't care. I, I'm not going to get excited, but... Uh, I, I don't know. It is kind of fun that they brought back both Arnold and Danny DeVito. I like Tracy Morgan. Uh, sure. Why not? It's a weird all three, enough IP. Yeah, I mean, I, all three very charismatic. Um, 
it's going to it's going to come down to the screenplay and whether or not they can justify as long of a break as there's been between the movies but uh, oh, I mean absolutely can, Danny DeVito but... is incredibly talented at polishing whatever he's in That's true. He might end up carrying the whole goddamn thing on his tiny little back. I mean, he yeah. And Tracy Morgan's very funny too. So who knows? Uh Arnold Schwarzenegger's as good as whatever he's in. You know what? I think uh yeah, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, I I think he... He's game. He is. He's game. I, I think he, yeah. you know, he was such an action star. When he started doing, you know, stuff that was like action comedies and stuff, you know, when he became a little more self-aware, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I like that. Like, Last Action Hero. Sure. Kindergarten, Kindergarten Cop. Like, cop, yeah. If he's, you know, like I said, he's game. For sure. I think especially now, he's, you know. Yeah, at this point, it'd be easier for him to do a Twins reboot than to be Conan again or something. Or Terminator. Stop doing Terminators. Do more Twins. You know what? I'm actually, I've talked myself (laughs) into it. As long as it prevents him from doing another shitty Terminator movie. Yeah. Which, how long can we fucking ride on the back of that dying IP? We need a uh, Terminator versus Aliens versus Predator and just kill them all off so that we don't have any more of those movies. Like a president and CEO, Travis Knight is directing the studio's next animated feature, Wildwood, an adaptation of the best-selling novel written by Decemberists Colin Malloy and illustrated by uh, Carson Ellis. Fuck yes. That is so, that is the most Portland thing I've ever heard. That is also, <laughs> I'm afraid that it missed its time. Like, I, you know, that this yeah. sounds like it should have come out in like 2010. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm here for it. Uh, for, I mean, first of all, Laika has never like dropped the ball. No, even uh, their worst movies are, are come from their, uh, a good place and are well intentioned and, and usually have, pretty well made. And have, you know, at least they have heart. You, you, right. I think they're one of the few animation studios that can still kind of go toe to toe with Pixar. Um, right. And with very much a smaller budget and, and smaller marketing team. Yeah. So, so I'm here for anything they do. Uh, and yeah, I mean. Do you know anything about this book? No. What's it called? It's called Wildwood. It's by Colin Moy of the Decemberists. Well, um, I mean, I love that because I still love the Decemberists. For sure. Yeah. And you know, I mean, all of their stuff is super storybooky anyway. But uh, it says here the film penned by Chris Butler is set beyond Portland city limits in Wildwood. You're not supposed to go there. You're not even supposed to know it exists. Oh, but uh, Prue McGill is about to enter this enchanted wonderland. So it's a fantasy something or other. I mean, of course. Um, yeah. Also, I didn't realize Carson Ellis is Colin Molloy's wife. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I think she did all, like art for their albums too, because it Probably. looks very like Decemberist. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm here for it. Cool. Sounds yeah, good. I'm down. Flight of the Navigator female reboot in the works at Disney Plus with Bryce Dallas Howard directing and producing. Okay. Uh, I mean, sure. Again, this is another. One of those ones that I'm like, you know, who remembers this IP? Uh, but I'll, I'll say this. I'm like Twins, which was an 
eighties comedy. Um, that's fairly obscure now, other than it was a star vehicle for those particular actors who are luckily still kind of famous. We're talking about a movie about a kid who climbs aboard a a spacecraft and flies around. Like, I mean, that's something that's that's a type of thing that can a type of story that's going to capture people's imaginations no matter when you set it. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it. um, Again, you know, we've ranted on here so many times about different, you know, reboots and remakes and stuff. Uh, This one, sure, it's fine. Um, Is this Bryce Dallas Howard's first feature film? I don't think so. I could be wrong about that. Because she, I know she directed like some episodes of Mandalorian and stuff, but I don't think she's directed a full feature yet. Uh, She did a movie called Dads in 2019. Okay. Um, and Call Me Crazy, a five film. I mean, I, that looks like it might have been like a, um, a, uh, multiple directors on that. Like, so, I'm, yeah. I mean, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard is sort of transitioning. She's sort of pivoting from actress to director. Uh, like I'm, her father. Sure she'll, she'll still act. Uh-huh. Uh, what? Like her father. Yeah, yeah, and you know, again, uh, I know she was involved in Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she kind of has already been cutting her teeth with Disney and sci-fi. So sure, uh, yeah. I, the one thing I will say about this one is, I think a lot of the charm of some of this '80s sci-fi, and I don't want oh. this to become too much of a rant about practical versus CGI effects, right? Um, but I do think, like, you know, some of the designs of Flight of the Navigator were were pretty unique. And so I, I guess I would just hope to see that this... I think my problem with CGI as a thing is it it kind of polishes stuff too much. It can even sterilize you, it. Yeah. yeah, even when you mix practical with CGI, like, sometimes I like it when it's just practical or right. or when the cgi is so minimal that you like uh the green knight for instance right the character of the green knight could have been cgi mm-hmm. very easily uh but i think there was something about the fact that it was all prosthetics and all makeup yeah that that just makes it feel a little more tactile makes it feel a little more real so i i guess i would just say i hope this doesn't just become kind of CGI uh, cash-in kind of thing. Like, right, and know, I would hope that they would be able to do more with the property than just kind of gender-swapping it and not really adding anything new, making some maybe some updated pop culture references, like the girl talks about being on TikTok or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want yeah. that. Um, I think you could, I mean, the structure is pretty solid, that story, mm-hmm. that you could do just about anything with it once you, you know, fill in the gaps. Um, yeah. I just hope they fill those gaps up with something interesting and with a real character who has real things to say and do. And yeah, I mean, and I think that the original Flight of the Navigator still pretty much holds up. I mean, it had, uh, yeah, it had very advanced special effects for its time. Totally. Um, like if you compare it to a lot of that like Amblin era 
kid stuff, yeah, like kid sci-fi stuff. Yeah, it looks better than say like Explorers. Um or Mac and Me. Well, <laughs> yeah. It actually is still a pretty decent movie and it, I mean it's definitely sort of an an ET ripoff. My point is sure. Flight of the Navigator makes sense. Uh I think this is a good project for Bryce Dallas Howard. I think, you know, I think she'll probably bring some heart to it at least. So, yeah. I hope so. I hope she's allowed to make something of it and that she's given a good budget and that they give a shit when they write the screenplay. I I hope yeah, I agree. All of that. Okay. Uh Christopher Nolan to direct a movie about Robert Oppenheimer, the creator of the A bomb. This is his next project. He's leaving yeah. Warner Brothers to to do this with Universal. Somehow yeah, I know I know a lot of directors were pretty upset about the uh, Warner Brothers direct to streaming thing, which I think they're being kind of babies about it, but I also kind of get it. You know, it kind of like the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit with Disney. Like, I think they, you know, need to kind of chill the fuck out a little bit and realize, you know, there is still a pandemic. Uh, Let's, I think compromises are good. Um, I do understand, you know, contractual obligations, but also like, hey, people are seeing your movie that it was literally just sitting on a shelf for a year. So whatever. Right. Um, But I think the idea of this, of a movie about Oppenheimer is cool, is a good idea. I'm I don't know that Christopher Nolan is the best person to direct it. Uh, I don't know. This might be good for him. This might be a good thing to kind of maybe ground him a little bit after kind of sowing his sci-fi roots for a while. Right. Um, well, I mean, you know, he made Dunkirk, which a lot of people besides you liked. That's true. And I think... I didn't hate it. I just <laughs> didn't love it. We might see now a bifurcation of his career where he makes... That's true. You know... He makes big sci-fi blockbusters for his his core fan base and goes back and makes, you know, historical epics, things like that. You know, he's always kind of been our generation Spielberg in that way, um, where he's sort of the, the auteur blockbuster guy. Like, he can do both. Yeah, um, he, he's one of the few directors that can right now sell a movie only on his name. Right, and... Not just sell a movie, but, like, create an event out of... Yeah, like Tenet. Yeah. You knew nothing about it other than it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Right. And maybe somebody's going back in time. We don't know. But right. we're going to see it. Yeah. So I think, you know, depending on how this movie does, and if he receives the accolades he believes he deserves for it, we might see him kind of doing both things. I, I could very much see him kind of going in that... Spielberg direction where it's like mm-hmm. he does War of the Worlds, but then he also does Jurassic Park yes. in the same year. Yes. Yeah. Or Munich and AI or whatever, you know. Uh yeah, I I think it makes sense. Um yeah, it could be really cool. So we'll yeah. see. Uh, I yeah. I just I don't know. I think him and Denis Villeneuve and all these directors that are making this big stink out of the streaming stuff, like Kind of get over it. I, I get it. It's right. not ideal. But also, like, nothing about the last two years has been ideal. Right. I mean, as, 
I, I, I'm especially a little salty about uh, Christopher Nolan's fit because he wanted to release it last summer before there was even a vaccine. Yeah. You know, and he was mad at the idea and he, he did. He got to like he released it, you know, mm-hmm. and it did what it was going to do under those conditions. So, yeah. you know, get mad. But that's just the world we're in right now. Like nobody's having fun. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, just all right, cool. Like, what? It it just like what a place of fucking privilege right. to be. Like, that's the thing you're complaining about. Well, people can't see my movie in theaters. Like, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, six hundred thousand Americans have died. Mm-hmm. More. Like, right. I don't know. We're fighting people just to like take a fucking vaccine right now right. so that we can go shopping. <laughs> you know, it's a life or death decision to decide if you want to eat at Applebee's. I mean, it's, it can't for some, for some people, it, for some people, for some people, but you know, like we're fighting to get fucking schools fully open again. Right. I mean, and that's just the way it's going to be. And I get that these people have millions invested in these projects. I get it. Yeah. It sucks. And it fucking sucks. And I want to see Dune in, on big screen. I'm probably going to see it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not everybody's comfortable with that. Yeah, and the people right who now. can, can. And the people who can't, can't. And that means it's going to affect your bottom line. Yeah. Because you're going to make 50,000 or 50 million opening weekend instead of 200 right. billion. Like, And the other thing, the other effect that this is having is we're seeing this kind of like boom bust every weekend Mm -hmm. now where uh, a movie will do pretty good for an opening weekend but then immediately dies the next weekend whereas before a big blockbuster produced by disney or whatever yeah it could could have a little bit of a tail yeah you, you could you could have two or three weeks collecting decent revenue but now it's like the people who are going to see it are going to see it that weekend and the people who aren't just aren't yeah um so it yeah everyone's going to take a hit and it it is what it is your choices are wait to release it when the dust settles if it settles or make what you're going to make yeah i mean i i i do think that is a little bit of an oversimplification oh. of it like you know i know uh, Denis Villeneuve, he like wants to, he's chomping at the bit to start a production of a Dune sequel, and I'm sure right, whatever there's... the revenue it makes will, you know, factor into that. Like, I get all of that stuff. It's just, yeah. it, it's, it's so frustrating that after fucking September of last year, some people just pretended this pandemic was done and the and they're like what why isn't everything gone back to normal what's wrong with you guys and it's like it's gonna take years years it, it, especially at like vaccination rates being what they are who knows we might never get back to pre-pandemic normal whatever that was right like we just might not who knows so chill the fuck out you're a fucking millionaire superstar blockbuster director you'll be fine mm-hmm it's fine. I'm going to see Dune and IMAX. I hope that makes you feel better. <laughs> Let's start talking about Malignant. Yes. And I'll describe that. Yeah, good luck. Good fucking luck. <laughs> Did you see this? This is, is going to be a hard review without spoilers, because we're going to have to go to Spoiler Town at some point. Sure. 
Um, we'll we'll pre-warn people when we decide to go that direction. Uh, did you see this in theaters or did you watch this at home? I watched this at home, but you'll be proud of me. I did watch this on my TV. I am. I did not watch it on my phone because uh, I I was actually very excited about this one. I didn't watch it on my phone. I wanted to like get as good of an experience as possible. Um, my wife was not super stoked about it. She didn't <laughs> watch it. I had to watch it before she came home from work. Yeah. You know, so I, I would have preferred to watch this like late at night. I had to watch it at four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. But whatever. That's fine. You can put the blanket over your head and the TV <laughs> and get the mini theater experience. Okay, so Malignant is the new film by director James Wan, um, who also did the original Saw, Dead Silence, the Conjuring movies, the first two Conjuring movies, and the first two Insidious films. As well as Aquaman. As well as Aquaman and the seventh iteration of Fast and the Furious. Yeah. Um, in he's fact, done a, he's done a lot. He's done a lot, and he's not a very old guy either. I think he's like barely 40. In fact, this is his sort of his return to the horror genre since Insidious 2 or Conjuring 2. I think those might have come out the same year. I'm not sure. So, But it's been longer than you probably realized. Well, no, I, I, I know. I, I didn't get into like the Conjuring Insidious movies at the time because it felt like they all came out in one year to me. <laughs> Um, yeah, it just was like conjuring, conjuring two, insidious, insidious two. And then I was like, these are all the same fucking guy and they all have Patrick Wilson in them. What the fuck? <laughs> and then in between those, there was the paranormal activity movies coming out too. Yeah. Which so, he didn't he, direct those. No, but they were all kind of part of that, that zeitgeist of like the, uh, of the suburban haunted house films. Yeah. The return to kind of this. Haunted House thing. Yeah, um, which he, you know, style-wise, style put a big stamp in of For reviving sure. that. For sure. But here, uh, Malignant is kind of a different a different kind of thing. And they're sort of selling it as a James Wan experience, you know, like... And, and I, I mean, I would say it is. It still feels like James Wan, but mm -hmm. it is not, it's not the same kind of Haunted House movie. Yeah, this isn't a chiller um, in the same way that those movies are. Uh, you know, th this movie has kind of a different tone and a different texture, but we'll get into that. Uh, let me describe a little bit of what's going on. So it says here in the IMDb description, Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. So Madison has kind of a a mysterious past, you know, beyond a certain age. She doesn't really remember anything. She was adopted kind of in her um, child years. Um, she had some trauma that she has sort of blacked out. And uh, sh her parents are not like totally forthright with her. She has a, uh, like a adopted sister who's sort of her protection. And, you know, for the most part, she's kind of been able to live a normal life until one day she gets into an argument with an abusive husband who hurts her while she's pregnant. And it comes to light that she has lost a few pregnancies. Mm -hmm. um, and after she gets in this argument with her husband, it awakens uh, this, this thing where she now starts to have these waking dreams of a 
some sort of ghoulish serial killer doing these vicious murders and comes to find out that these murders are occurring on the other side of Seattle where they where they live. This involves the police, kind of her trying to sort of warn them. Of course, they don't believe her because, you know, she's having dreams and, like, you can't use that as evidence. Yeah, um, she's, I mean, she's saying some pretty unbelievable things and it's like... But the things she's saying do, do seem to match up with what's, what's happening in these crime scenes. To the point where she, like, becomes a suspect and it, or is she psychically linked to this killer? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, she doesn't know exactly what's going on. They don't know exactly what's going on. And as these, these murders become more and more intense, um, it seems like this connection between her and this killer... Uh, becomes stronger, and it, you know she might be next uh, yeah, on the it's list. A, it's a little bit more of a mystery than than like a haunted house thing, right? So I think that people who come into this expecting, and like I said, the trailers don't give away a lot. They're really just kind of selling it on James Wan and the style, and you know. Um, but this is genetically kind of more connected to eighty slashers giallo films from like the 70s especially like there's a lot of i think dario argento in this i have another thing that i want to say about this but i'm i'm waiting till we get to spoilerville so uh yes i think slasher that is definitely a big part of this um yeah it's sort of (laughs) there is a paranormal element to it but it's it's uh, not what you think it is a, a funny thing you and richard use the term giallo horror a lot. And I was always kind of too embarrassed to say I didn't really know what that meant. Until I looked at, I always thought it was like a director oh. named giallo. Okay. I didn't know well, that's it was funny. like a genre type. I thought there was some horror like director from the 60s and 70s named like Federico Giallo. And like <laughs> the, the same way, you know, we talk about... um like Cronenbergian or right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Romero or you know, like, and I was like, God, how have I never seen a fucking Giallo movie? Well, you <laughs> probably have. Um, well, uh, yeah. So Giallo for the uninitiated is a genre. It is. It is not a director. It is uh, an Italian genre. Was a. It was big in like literary in the literary world. Um, in like the fifties, I think. Sure, kind of pulp, 50s. pulp, um, thriller, uh, stuff that came out like in the in in Italy at that time. Very kind of similar to like the Penny Dreadfuls and stuff that we had in America, um, so, or like the pulp comic books and of like torture and and you know gruesome stuff. Um, and then in the like sixties and seventies, it was big in Italian cinema. Right. So it kind of it kind of develops into its own style. It's sort of influenced by like the Hitchcock and Psycho and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, it, it eventually sort of develops it into its own style. Like much Italian film who who is influenced by the American style. So if you look at the spaghetti western versus the traditional John Ford Western, there's a lot yeah. more of sort of an operatic quality to it. The lighting is a lot more extreme. The the color filtering is a lot more extreme. The acting is a lot more unrealistic and a lot more um kind of intentionally campy. The women are all beautiful models with giant boobs running around in barely anything. And you know, there's these very elaborate set pieces. There, yeah, there's an element of like salaciousness mixed with like 
film noir kind of. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of film noir, and then also sort of the um, uh, gothic horror to a certain extent as yeah, well. Yeah. And, and 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 like I said, the what I think the, what the genre is really well known for, which Juan definitely picks up here, is this uh, these these very elaborate set pieces and these very elaborate kill scenes. Um, that are have a lot of kind of technical mechanics to them and a lot of um you know beauty i mean there's a lot of like you know colored lighting and that kind of stuff the the reds and the of the blood is like you know kind of like marchino cherry red um yeah yeah and it's it's all it's all supposed to be over the top it's all supposed to be kind of more theatrical more operatic than mm-hmm. than what you get and then that style of sort of Italian exploitation film then begins to influence the American like teen slashers of the eighties to a certain extent. Yeah. As well as straight thrillers. There's your very quick abridged history of geology history lesson for, for today. Yeah. Uh, And specifically the directors who are most well known for this is, would be filmmakers like Dario Argento. Most people know Suspiria is probably his most well-known film. That one's a little actually off character because that one is a little bit more explicitly um, supernatural, whereas a lot of them are more just kind of serial killer stuff, Um, as well as the films, a lot of the films, not all of the films, but a lot of the films of Mario Bava, Um, specifically the film Blood and Black Lace, which is kind of seen as like one of the originators of the style, both of which I think you can see have direct influence on this film. If well, there is an American, I, here's, here's the thing. If there if, is, if you if you know that style, yeah, you can see it in just the poster. Like, sure, the, yeah, the trailer maybe isn't showing as much, but like the the poster looks like so seventies yeah. fucking like uh, horror serial killer style, like right. There's kind of it looks like like the the poster for Black Sunday or something like that, like a Baba film. Totally. Um, and, and so in that sense, the marketing for this movie has been, I think, very smart. But yes, and I think that you know this is stylistically and tonally fairly different from something like like a Conjuring film, which. Those movies, which is a haunted house movie, yeah. Which those are drawing more from, like movies like The Shining or The Poltergeist or Amityville Horror mm-hmm. or even The Exorcist. You know, this kind of more grounded seventies, eighties um, psychological stuff. Uh, you know, those movies. I mean, they're formulaic to a certain extent, and they have genre tropes and trappings for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't exist exactly in the real world, especially. The Insidious movies are a little bit even more kind of fantasy than the uh, than the Conjuring movies, but um, this one is, exists in a heightened reality the whole time. Yes, and I think yeah. that people who don't know what we're stylistically drawing from might be taken aback by the intentional camp. Oh yeah, so I mean, the so the opening sequence of this movie is like. James Wan by way of Sam Raimi. It is yeah. like so heightened and <laughs> so like like you literally have a guy like running he eats electricity. I'm like, what the fuck am I signing up for right now? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, and then if the opening here's the thing, if the opening sequence doesn't have you, then this isn't the movie for you. Right. 
And if you're expecting, you know, kind of this more like ghosty demonology stuff as the explanation for the twists and stuff, that's definitely not the movie you're getting. Yeah, exactly. So this it is a very different it's a different horror genre that he's stepping into. And I found that very exciting. He there's still like, especially at the beginning, um, uh, like once we get past sort of the cold open and once we get into the actual story itself, there is still like some elements of the haunted house stuff. Sure. I think like, he's playing with that. I think he knows he is for sure. He knows his audience. That. He knows what they're expecting and he's subverting that. There's some, yeah, there's some like, there's some mild jump scares and stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's all There's that suburban towards... thing that, like, you know, this is your home, this is your neighborhood kind of feel. For sure, yeah. Yeah. But as we get kind of deeper and deeper into the mystery, we get further and further away from that. But I, again, I think it was honestly kind of masterfully done. Like, the way he sort of lures you in with, this sort of expectation of what you think a James Wan horror movie should be and leads you into what the movie actually is. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you've been paying attention to his whole career um, and you watch the original Saw film, not, Mm. I can't speak for the 150 Saw sequels, but, um, (laughs) you know, the original Saw film and Dead Silence um, about an evil... A ventriloquist puppet. Um, this is more sort of in line with where he was at that point. It when he was in his twenties or whatever. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, and and I would even say that the first Saw movie even has kind of Giallo influence. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's there's this kind of like you know twist ending um, expectation yeah. of of that. The set pieces specifically, like and the like the. The kind of uh, artistic weirdness of of the kills, mm-hmm. um, and you, you you he's kind of going back to that to a certain extent, but it, it's even more heightened than that. Now, I will say that you know there's not a ton of, um, you know, we don't get a Patrick Wilson, we don't get a Vera Farmiga here, we don't get a Rom Livingston. Um, no, uh, I honestly I thought about that while I was watching the movie, and I was kind of curious about that because i feel like you know james Wan, he's got pull at this point and i think that kind of adds to the movie the the fact that we don't have that well i think it adds to the b movie-ness of it i think he 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 gets a b cast to be in his b movie and this is intentionally a b movie um you know he's he's making a pop horror film it's a B movie with, uh, you know, A plus production value. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's made it's made very well, and it, and that is a lot of his, um, especially with his camera techniques and stuff, and the way that he, you know, he'll do a lot of these like over the head shots, you know, through this mm. house and stuff, and and kind of using his environment. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, cool tracking shots. A lot of uh, you're very aware of. I mean, I think that's something that him as a director excels at is you're very aware of like your surroundings, mm-hmm. um, uh, even in like, you know, something as schlocky as Aquaman, um, 
he's always doing something interesting with the camera, at least. Yeah. Um, and and aware of what's happening in the frame. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that comes out especially in his horror work because so much about horror is building tension and and knowing, you know, what's happening in your foreground and background and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that that is definitely um, a major concern of his in this film, especially because there's so much of it that's mystery element uh, yeah. involved in it. I will say that I, I do think that the the downgrade in the quality of acting is noticeable. Yes. I think I for the type of story, it's acceptable. But again, I think that people are going – it's one of those things you're either going to understand the tone or you're, you're not. either in on it or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with and that. And some of the I dialogue think... is ridiculous too, like uh, intentionally so. It's Again, especially kind of loaded at the front end. Yeah. The, like – so there was, I I was watching this movie and I kind of went on a journey with it. The cold open happens and I'm like, here we fucking go. I am all in. Uh, I love that sequence so much. <laughs> uh, for again, all of this, it is so heightened. It is so over the top. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like Sam Raimi. It is. Yeah. Uh, it is cheeky. It is. The dialogue is like. Old school forties and fifties creature feature dialogue, sure. yeah. Um, and then there's sort of this hard jump to this again, kind of domestic horror. This uh, kind of what we're a little more familiar with with James Wan, right? And this part of the movie is where I struggled the most, sure, because yeah. uh, because the acting is you know a little less than. Yeah. Um, be- because of all of these things, I'm like, okay, wait, what happened? What? Where were we? We were just in this like fun, super pulpy sci-fi camp. Now we're like pulling it back. So I I was with the movie, but kind of tentatively so. Sure. Uh, for for a lot of the first act, I was like, oh, okay, they're like, there's some chunky exposition here. Yeah. Um. Uh. There's it felt like we were kind of regressing in the movie, but as the movie goes on, it unfolds in this. I mean, the climax of the movie is one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about that. Let's get into our spoiler zone now. Hey, this is editing Cassidy here. And I just wanted to let the listeners know that if you don't want to hear the spoilers for malignant, Fast forward to the hour and seven minute mark. Uh, If you want to just skip to the streaming homework without hearing all of the juicy spoilers, just skip ahead to an hour and seven minutes and 40 seconds. Let's talk about that last 30 minutes of the movie. Now, there's a lot of online chatter about how insane the movie gets and how, like, batshit it gets. Yeah. And, and, I'm a little surprised. I'm not surprised necessarily by fans who are experiencing it that way because they might not know the precedent. Mm-hmm. I am a little bit surprised of how many film critics who've seen it who are this blown away by the ending of the movie. I mean, it is crazy. It oh, goes. I it, was. 
I was blown away by it. It's, I was like, it goes cuckoo bananas, but in the best way. I was like, here we fucking go. I right. It was it fulfills it, the promise of that cold open. Yes, it was like all of a sudden everything just sort of clicks to me, and I'm like, oh fuck, this is the movie I've been in this whole time. Right. Right. So, I mean, I'll say up up to that point. You know, you talked about the first third kind of being a little shaky. Um, I was in, I was kind of getting into like the serial killer thriller stuff and sure. like you know some some of the setups there and yeah, I was kind of you know it, it it was enough to keep me. Mm-hmm. It was enough and by to that point like, it was kind of clear that it's like okay this isn't just a demon movie. Yeah, there there might that might work its way in somehow, but that's not necessarily what this is. And I was kind of happy because I didn't need necessarily another like conjuring deal. Um, mm. And then we get into the last third, which really like goes full sci-fi horror camp craziness. Bombs um, to the wall. Holy shit. Yeah. But I do think narratively there is, we'll just say it. Okay. So the, the last third of the movie, you find out throughout the whole thing. She, you know, her mysterious past, blah, blah, blah. She had an evil twin. It was a conjoined twin situation. Um, the evil twin's name was Gabriel, and she hears his voices in her head and blah, blah, blah. You're led to believe up to that point that it's just a conjuring demon um, or something. Or, or something. The, or something a ghost. Or, yeah, on. something weird. but Or some psychic link or something like that. But what you end up finding out is that the her, her evil conjoined twin... Um, who was killing her as a child um, or taking power from her or whatever, um, ended up getting removed or partially removed so that she could live a normal life. And in her brain. Right. So she shares like part of a brain with an evil brain that is fighting for dominance inside of her. And it's actually her that's going out and doing these crazy kills. Yeah. yeah. When, when her husband assaults her, it awakens, it like knocks this Gabriel free, basically, and he he is able to like take control of her body, right? And he goes on a revenge rampage against all these doctors and stuff who were fucking around with her. Um, so what I was gonna say is, uh, what I think is interesting about this movie, besides all the stuff we're talking about, and we can we can get back to that, and we can get back to the the climax in a second. Uh, there was a point when I was like. Oh, this is also like a superhero movie. Like it super villain plays like a like an anti-hero, like B for Vendetta, huh. like uh The Crow, like Darkman. It has those same story beats as well, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. The scene where he's taking out all these fucking cops is the same as the scene in The Crow where he's taking out all the fucking Gangsters. You know, the shootout with all the gangbangers. It's the same as the scene in The Matrix where they're, like, shooting up the lobby. Like, it's the exact same. It's just he is clearly a serial killer supervillain. Mm-hmm. But it plays those same beats as well, which I was like, it, again, just brought me back to the Sam Raimi-ness of it. I was like, sure. oh. Yeah. And, again, just kind of put a little cherry on top for me. Yeah, yeah. Um and I, where I was going with that is, you know, this uh, reveal that happens. I'm su- I'm only surprised that there's so many, like, film enthusiasts who are shocked by the ending. And maybe they're just trying to sell it, you know, because they know that it's kind of a hard sell. Um, 
So they're like, you got to stay till the last third because well, it's, it's crazy. Also, but I think it's also a visualization thing because here's, here's the thing. After I saw the movie, I can, I can decompress it. I can intellectualize it. I can say all the, these things as I was watching it. I was like, I wanted to just fucking tweet, oh my god, this is the craziest fucking thing I've seen. And I think James Wan as a director and is very smart because he lays those seeds in the cold open. He, he shows you what movie you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But then it shifts gears and then it's the slow build to that payoff. And that's why it like blew my mind. This cold open, I was like, oh, okay. That was just sort of a fun introduction into this world, but I'm getting something else. And then once we get back to that, I'm like, oh, fuck, here we fucking go. Mm. And also just the visuals. Yeah, the visualization of it is pretty wild. We're in full spoiler town. She, like, peels the back of her skull back. And it is one of the most grotesque, insane. (laughs) We've got body horror mixed in with this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks so fucking cool yeah i i was just like oh my god this is i was just blown away by yeah it. i like i like sort of the halloween costume quality of the of the villain in this well at at first because you sort of see you sort of see the point of view of the villain kind of throughout the movie like you mm-hmm. don't know the whole deal but you see him like working in his lair on his his weapon and and you see him like you know, talking to people through the radio or whatever. Yeah. So you kind of see his point of view a little bit. Uh, and I was like, okay, he's got long hair and a trench coat. Like at first I was like, oh, well he's sort of pretty generic. Actually. I was, I was a little disappointed, uh, when we sort of first see his like a weird lizard face. <laughs> uh, I was like, he kind of just looks like the from, uh, uh, sinister, sinister, you know, it's like, okay, sure, you know, he's sort of a nightmare creature, whatever. But then once we get that fucking peel back, that full reveal, I was like, oh, here we go. There was there was intention behind this design. It wasn't right. just generic long hair trench coat villain. It was like, oh, we're we're hiding something in plain sight. Right. And the and the the choreography of like the backwards fighting and so fucking cool. all sorts of weird stuff. But what I wanted to say is that there is a, like basically a subgenre of like the absorbed evil twin that takes over. Sure. Like this yeah. has not never been in a no, movie. No, story-wise it's it's nothing new under the sun, you know. We we we've heard this story before. There's, you know, evil twins is like one of those primal kind of stories. Right, but even more specifically, the we had to we had to surgically remove it and it's still inside you and taking you over. Like even that, as specific yeah. as that is, has been in other movies before. And I was going That's, to it's literally a joke in the Venture Brothers playing on that condition. On that trope, because they played on every trope. I was gonna say when we were talking about Giallo, the uh the uh, the American equivalent of a Giallo director at the time that Giallo was happening in Italy is Brian De Palma. A lot of people like look at look at a lot of the movies he made, the thrillers, like his Hitchcock thrillers that he was making in the seventies, as very stylistically similar to the point where it's uncanny sometimes. Movies like Dress to Kill, movies mm-hmm. like Sisters with Margot Kidder, which almost has the exact same plot. 
Spoilers for Sisters if you've never seen it. Uh, Which I haven't. Thanks, asshole. It's a good movie. You, sh- <laughs> you should still see it, though. It's a lot of fun. Um, but it is kind of like those those movies in particular have that sort of the same sort of otherworldly heightened operatic quality. So- but I mean, so there's that movie. There's also The Dark Half with uh, the, the George A. Romero uh, um, adaptation of the Stephen King thing, where his writer's voice comes from a tumor in his brain that, you know, takes him over, which was an yeah. absorbed twin. There's uh, the movie Basket Case, which is kind of like the horror comedy version of this. So I, I think that I'm reason- just surprised that like the, the Rotten Tomato critics are like this last 30 minutes. How in the world? It's like, I I mean, literally, there uh, there's like a litany of movies in this tradition. Yes. Uh, here's the thing. Absolutely. It, it is not like... I mean, done with this, panache. This movie, done with this panache. This did not create the, yeah, the absorbed evil twin thing, but <laughs> a couple things. Yes. First of all, that particular trope has kind of died out. We haven't seen it in a long sure. time. And it's, it's a, because it is such a hard sell. And every other horror trope has kind of been played for for blockbuster money at this point, right? We've got right. zombies, we've got vampires, we've got uh, ghosts, we've got uh, creatures from the Black Lagoons are winning Oscars. Like, <laughs> literally every, every horror thing has kind of been mined. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while. So I don't think anybody was kind of expecting that in sort of this modern mm-hmm. day. And again, I'm giving credit, full fucking credit to James Wan here because he pulls back on 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 that cold open. He he tells you the movie you're getting right at the very beginning. Yeah. And then he pulls it back and it's like, ooh, or maybe the, maybe this is a spooky ooky thing. Uh, you know, we've got the TV channels flipping. We've got a mysterious black haired figure with supernatural strength, like yeah, it was scary dreams, connections. Yeah, we've got you know the background melting away. Like he subverts his own expectation to the point where I did not expect it to be a fucking brain twin. <laughs> right, and, and especially the fucking, visualization. Yeah, and when she peels when she's in that prison cell and peels the back of her head to reveal an ugly lizard face to 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 twist her arms backwards and murder these women i'm like holy fucking shit this is not the movie i thought i was signing up yeah that's when i was fully that's when i was fully in was the prison cell scene absolutely um with zoe bell with a ridiculous mullet um by the way i don't think anyone who's just in lockup is that mean oh no (laughs) the whole scene makes absolutely no sense and it is there's there's a woman there that's dressed like like 1970s blaxploitation for zero reasons (laughs) zero reasons she's just like must have come from like a disco party or something but she's there just being there and then for no reason whatsoever, they decide to kick her ass and like just beat the li- beat the and living, just, and like, then at her shit like beat yeah. her half to death. While while she's on the ground kicking her repeatedly, then she starts shaking, and one of them says, "Oh my god, she's having a seizure!" It's like you just kicked her ass and started kicking her while she was down. Like she might have a seizure. Um, no, <laughs> the whole thing is ridiculous and corny, 
and great. It's a lot of fun. This is a it's, fun. But yeah, exactly. It is so intentionally those things. It yes. is it's not accidental. It is so much fun. Yeah. I was just blown away by how much fun this movie was. Yes. Yes, I I'm I'm giving it a B cuz it is a B movie. And I do think that you know, there's a there, there's a lot of influences it's pulling from, and whether it's Raimi or whether it's Giallo or whether it's you know De Palma or whatever, you know, like it. There's there is it's 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 kind of a pastiche, but it's a fun it, it pastiche. Is, but, but this isn't it's, that far it's, away from something that would have been on like one of those like Tarantino style grindhouse double features. Totally. I I mean, this is this is like. Uh, self-aware, this is, you know, barely far removed from as self-aware as Cabin in the Woods, as far as that goes. Like, he's doing all of these things intentionally. It's just, it's not winking at the camera the way. And I think that is the thing that is going, that, you know, I, I would almost wager that if there were studio notes that somebody might have suggested something like that. Like, if you're going to get this batshit, if you're going to be crazy, let's, let's, let's make, let's, let's heighten make the it. comedy. Like, let's, let's, mm-hmm. you know, make it more self-aware. Let's make more references. Like, let's, let's sell it to the horror comedy crowd more so than, than the James Wan chiller crowd. And James Wan probably stuck to its guns and said, no, I'm doing this, you know, with, the intention without irony without, without irony. irony yeah yeah which is which is i think one of the reasons i liked it even more uh uh which i don't i don't want to say anything um uh okay yes so you're gonna give it a b uh, yeah full b but I, a very, but an enthusiastic one i'm giving it a couple of great i don't think it's as good as as like the first conjuring and it's not I as it like is, groundbreaking as like the first saw, um, but I think so it's really I'm good. I'm going to give it uh, realistically for just like anybody. I would say B plus. Okay, but grading it on a curve for what it is, for what it knowingly is, uh, I'm going to give it an A minus. Oh, okay. I fucking loved this movie, uh, and to me, it hit. All the right notes. Yeah, to me, this is like a uh, midnight show at South by Southwest or like Fantastic Fest crowd kind of movie. Um, Absolutely. It, the, the only thing I would say... This is, is like a hard horror geeks kind of movie. I kind of wish... So while I was watching it, I kind of wish like the acting had been a little bit better in the sure. front end. Maybe some of the dialogue. But that's not what this movie is. And so that's why I'm grading it on a curve. Once I got there, once I realized what I'm watching, then I was all in. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm g- giving it a curve grade of an A minus. Sure, sure. Yeah, I understand. Um, do you think that now knowing what it is, that Ashley would have been able to handle it more? Yes, absolutely. Because it's I not was... the con. It's not like a you know a scare yourself in your bed kind of movie. I honestly think uh I honestly think she Unless you it. went into the bathroom and put on like a black robe and then started walking toward her backwards to scare her. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. No, I she came in at the very like very end and I was a little upset cuz I was like I think I kind I 
I might make her watch it still because I want to see her reaction uh, to to the end, to the climax. Because okay. it is just so great. I wish I, I honestly, one of my first thoughts was, fuck, I wish I'd been filming my reaction for this. <laughs> because I just went, oh my fucking God, no way. Like I lost my mind just sitting alone in my living room. I was just okay. grinning from ear to ear. Like, I can't believe that's what this movie... Uh, it was so good. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope... I, 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 I hope, wanted to, like, immediately re-watch it. I hope that the people who have listened to this entire review have already seen it. Because the less you know, the better it is. But, you know. Absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to uh, our streaming homework, which we did from Tubi this week. The free streaming service Tubi. I don't know if it's on other services. Might be on Amazon Prime. Um, this is 1983's Suburbia, directed by Penelope Spheris. Uh, tell us what this movie is about. Yeah, uh, we're shifting gears here. A little bit, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, this is about... This is a movie about a kid who has an abusive mom, um, alcoholic mom, uh, decides to run away from home, Um uh, set in the eighties, right? This was yeah. It's set in the year that it came out. It's set in eighty three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. It was a contemporary film at the time. Yes. Um. So this kid runs away from home, kind of a uh, broken home, abusive relationship with his mother, who's an alcoholic. He decides, well, she doesn't give a shit about me, so I'm just gonna leave. Whatever. Yep. He ends up going to this like punk rock show. And meeting Chris Pedersen, who plays Jack Diddley, and introduces him to this punk rock home, kind of this home for, like, vagrant kids uh, called the Total Rejects. Is that what TR stood for? I think so. Yeah. It's a squat. Um, I mean, it's a home is a kind word. It's a house that should be, should be, uh you know, probably, um, yeah. So it's, it's this house that's been like condemned because it's, it's due to be tore down for like freeway construction at some point. So, uh, these kids are squatters here. They're just living in it for free. Uh, yeah, they, it's kind of a, a weird, like lost boys, punk rock, Lord of the flies thing, <laughs> uh, where they just sort of create their own lifestyle. They create their mm-hmm. own sort of like, family unit with these like 17 kids or whatever yeah these runaways and yeah and yeah it's very much like punk rock 80s lifestyle they just kind of wake up whenever they want uh go to shows drink whenever they want do whatever drugs they want vandalize uh, yeah vandalize shit hang out at local convenience stores and annoy people and particularly annoy the suburban area that they live in so uh you know like the adults in the area think they're you know these no good kids um which to be fair they are doing no good things that you know uh the one of the first scenes in the movie is this girl to punk rock show getting stripped down naked and like in the middle of the mosh pit yeah yeah and and horribly like uh humiliated uh, humiliated and and uh abused and yeah yeah so these the this suburban area decides that these kids are 
kind of public enemy number one. They're the sort of the biggest problem around. In particular, these two kind of like rednecky guys, and you know, keep coming around and hassling them. Um, and you know, stuff happens because of that. Yeah. So this was produced by Roger Corman. Um, okay. And this is makes a lot of sense. It does. And this is uh, the first feature film by Penelope Spheris, who prior to this had done the punk rock documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization in 1980, which documented the burgeoning Los Angeles punk scene at that time Mm -hmm. in Hollywood and Hermosa Beach. Um, and, you know, covering Circle Jerks and Black Flag and Fear and and uh, and the Germs and all of these early bands. Yeah, and and this movie feels like kind of her attempt to to take a snapshot of that scene. Uh, and, yes, and very much it, like oh, she I mean, lived with those kids for that little period of time. She saw what was going on, and she want this is her take of like trying to sort of narrative and put a narrative yeah. to that. Um, and I think with with mixed results. Um, and I do think, you know, yeah, she's, a, I, I agree. she's a little bit older than this scene. You know, she was at the time, probably around 30. Um, so, you know, she, her background is more kind of like late sixties, early seventies, like rock and roll. And mm-hmm. she did like early music videos and stuff like that before she got involved with Lorne Michaels and SCTV and started doing like you know, comedy stuff with, with, uh, with, um, Albert Brooks. Um, she did some comedy stuff with him and was producing movies and stuff around like the animal house era. And, uh, she kind of went off on her own to do decline with pretty much no money because nobody cared to document that stuff other than her in 1980, you know, it ended up being this cult phenomenon, whatever. And then with this movie, you know, she's getting, she's kind of, she's given a exploitation film budget. To, which probably was still more than what she had for decline. Um, and she uses a lot of non-actors and a lot of like scene kids from that time period. Uh, no, yeah. Most notably, we see Mike B. The Flea, a.k.a. The Flea from <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers, prior to when he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The, um, there's a funny... Did you catch the, the thing? No, what thing? So, so there's a scene where they're like driving around and... One of the other actors calls him Flea. Oh, really? He calls him Flea, and there's like a moment that goes by, and then he looks at him and goes, No, my name's Razzle. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So that was either a fuck up, or... I, I think it was a fuck up. That, or the, that, the, the that moment it happened, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, later on, Penelope Spheris would, would go on to do... um. The Wayne first Wayne's World. World and the Little Rascals and Beverly Hillbillies and she was you know, sheep. Yeah. So she was uh, a mover and a shaker. And she also did two other installments of the Decline series, uh, The Metal Years, which kind of documented the hair metal scene in the late 80s. And then uh, uh, Decline of Western Civilization Part 3, which cover, which is actually weirdly similar to what she's doing here with these kind of like gutter punk kids who are homeless and addicts by the age of 18. And Hmm. it's by far the most depressing of the three installments. And it's a lot less about the music and much more about sort of this forgotten homeless culture. 
Um, well, I mean, this isn't like a super fun rom. No, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that, and this is where the movie's a little, you know, you can agree or disagree. I don't know. We'll see. But I, I think this is where the, there's a little bit of a tension between the intentionality of what the movie is. I think the Corman aspect of it is let's sell this as a teenage exploitation movie. This is a movie about kids doing crime and getting in trouble and being wild. And let's sell that as like, you know, the oddity of yeah, like but, punk but rockers th- in their natural habitat mm-hmm. um, and look at them being wild. Uh, and then there's also this uh, this other movie that wants to happen, which is this serious, empathetic look at like these kids who've been forgotten and are and are um, like protecting themselves and and are dealing with all of these real world issues like you know rape and incest and and addiction and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, those two movies are always at odds. Uh, yeah, I, I think tonally, I mean, you can clearly see this kind of evolves into something like SLC Punk. Sure. Which I think is is kind of able to navigate that a little better um, because I think it does it with a little bit more intention. Yeah. I, I agree with you here. I think I think there's a lot of things going on with this movie and they don't all quite coalesce all the time. Right. Um, like. The fact that it's scripted, I think having actors might have helped sell yeah. the realism. Whereas it almost has like this documentary approach to it, but there's a narrative. There's a clear story here. And so that doesn't always work. Uh, it does sometimes. Um, yeah, there's a but- there's a range of raw talent in the young cast and, and from yeah. scene to scene. It's not consistent. Like sometimes totally. a kid will be pretty good in one scene and not so great in the next one. Um, and you uh, know, the, the, the skinhead guy in particular. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's and the adult cast, watch- which you, you can tell are probably more seasoned actors are like more consistent throughout. For sure. That's kind of how I felt through this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, especially having seen stuff like SLC Punk and, you know, uh-huh. yeah, kind of knowing stuff about this scene and, and everything. Um, it definitely, I do think she's successful in making it feel of the time. Right. Like it, it does feel very authentic in that sense. But as a narrative movie, I don't know that it totally works. Uh, right. I, I I feel like a few things, even just discounting the fact that she had the actor she had, you know, so mm-hmm. we, you know, I'm not going to say like if there was a, a stronger cast, like, yes, then you maybe could have done something more sprawling and more, more, um, ensemble like this. Um, but given the fact that she has the cast that she has, I think if she, we kind of get a main character with, with the kid we first are introduced with, but he kind of is integrated in the ensemble pretty early on. Yeah, I, I would say the the Jack Diddley is probably more the main character. Him and, and the girl, because she's like there at the very beginning with the yep. weird dog attack scene. <laughs> Which comes off funnier than it should, honestly. And then, Well, it, it does, but it's... it's it does, it's, but it doesn't. And there's this uh, thematic thing between, like, the street dogs and the street kids and, you know. Yeah, but it 
it, it's awkward. It it doesn't quite line up the way I think it was meant to. I, but that's kind of this whole movie. And there's kind of there there is a charm to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a very flawed experiment of like I'm going to make a documentary but script it kind of right. Um, that's what this feels like it's trying to do. You know, it's kind, kind of a kind of it's like, a docudrama. Yeah, kind of yeah. you know almost a similar thing as like Blair Witch Project or whatever. Like yeah, I mean there's it, l- I think there's less verisimilitude than that. I think I just mean the fact that there's like. There is a narrative thread, but we're going to kind of piece it together. I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I just, I don't think it totally works through the whole movie. Right. I, th- I, I think that it's an interesting oddity of the time period. And it's, yeah. it's an interesting document of kind of like what, like the LA punk scene looked like at the time. Kind of. Although sure. I, do, I do still think there's kind of an outsider looking in quality to it and i i feel like there's yeah i feel like there's kind of a uh an unintentional judgment yeah because there's sort of a moralistic thing that i I especially the kind of ending sort of plays off as sort of this morality tale to me right A, a little bit and i think that there's only kind of so many ways you can do sort of teenage drama and i think she sort of leans on a tradition um, yeah, there, there's elements that feel a little after school, specially to me. But you could say uh, the same thing about SLC Punk to a certain yeah. extent. I mean, that movie I think dramatically pulls it off better because we have better actors. Uh, but there is, you know, the I think that that movie is is passing similar judgment. But but I I think narratively it works a little bit better because the whole movie. It's your one perspective. Under that lens. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about with this. I think the the fact that it's an ensemble of a lot yeah. of not very great actors, um, and the fact that the movie, to a point, just it's it's very loose and kind of like Altmany in a way. But I don't. Yeah. Whereas with with SLC Punk, we have what you know, we have a main character arc. Yeah, we have one, and, and there's in there's intention behind that. Whereas this. There isn't really. Yeah, it, it's so an arc kind on... of kind of develops, but it, yeah. it it sort of it almost feels like the movie is being wrangled into an arc <laughs> exactly. um, at a point. Uh, and then maybe the more interesting movie to make would have been something more random and vignettes, and you know something like well, I mean something more like Decline. Uh, and I think ultimately this this material just works better as a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. At least at that time period, with 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 this director, but I but yeah, I mean, there it's it's a exercise in early independent cinema. I mean, it's still interesting if you're interested in punk rock, if you're interested in, sure. in independent film, if you're interested in all these things we're talking about. I mean, which if you're listening to this podcast, this is definitely not the first time we brought up any of this subject matter. Sure. Um. So. You know, it might be, it's probably worth your time, uh, but it's not the best movie. No. Um, I, I, you do get some good performances out of it. You get a, you get a, a good uh, TSOL um, set in the middle there. Uh, young Jack Grisham, all the leather jacket doing his thing. Um, oh, okay. The one that all the girls, like, were really into? Possibly. The middle one. So, yeah, I mean... It, there's some there's some live performance stuff here by actual bands from that time period, and you, that you can definitely tell she's like 
grabbed from her experience doing Decline, which is kind of a concert film at the same time as being a documentary. Um, as well as, I mean, she's done a ton of concert stuff in her career. That's like kind of where she got started. So she's very good with dealing with live performance and, and, and creating the atmosphere of being in the room and, and that kind of stuff. And that's when I think, I think the filmmaking actually is better than the storytelling. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Cause it's a, for an exploitation movie, you know, it's, it looks pretty good. Like it, it, even for this time period, it looks, looks low budget, but it doesn't look like shit. It looks like a real movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's actual shots in it. There's, yeah. yeah, there's intention behind the camera. I, I, yeah, I just don't know that the intention always is lined up with what the movie wants to be, but yeah, it is there. It is. It almost feels like she shot a bunch of stuff. And then, like, had to kind of find the story in editing. Yeah, and then maybe, like, tack the ending on or something. Yeah, like, she kind of, there was a spine of a narrative, but then she was like, you know, the rest is all like, oh, well, we'll just do this scene here at the bodega, and then we'll do this scene, you know, here on the freeway. And it's, you know, there's kind of no rhyme or reason for how it's kind of constructed. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, I also thought a lot about uh, the movie Valley Girl, which to me feels like, like yeah. like sort of the 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 pop culture negative of this movie like that's like you know on the other side of the valley um you uh, you know <laughs> from the other perspective that's it's funny because the, i actually thought this this that movie also popped into my head and i i feel yeah. like it has a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same charm and a lot of the same flaws yeah i mean this is like the grimier dirtier more uh testosterone version of of that but make for an interesting double feature for sure i'm sure you know back when cine family existed or whatever they probably did that mm-hmm. um but yeah and it's interesting like early to see like la at that time and you know that kind of stuff so yeah i mean as a as a historical piece it's definitely fascinating it's just yeah yeah as a narrative storytelling thing it doesn't totally work but there's also charm in its flaws so it's true and and i think your interest in the subject matter is going to be wholly dependent on how you feel about it overall for sure um what do you have for us to watch as streaming homework on the next episode so uh over the past summer i have been doing my x-files watch uh and earlier in the year i watched the X-Files movie, Fight the Future. Now, this is a movie you've actually seen before, but it has been a long-ass time. Yes. So, I feel like it, it might be fun to, you know, have you revisit it, um, and we can we can get nerdy. We can talk about some X-Files shit up in this right. hizzy. And at this point, you have had much... You've seen a lot more X-Files than I have. So... Yeah. I'm on season eight right now. I, I only have one more season of like the traditional show. And then there was like the revamp they did a few years ago. Oh, which I forgot even happened. But yeah. Um, so we'll we'll do that. We're going to be talking about the first Exiles movie from 1998. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the things that we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us like Patrick did 
add hey. and agree with everything I said. Only email us if you agree with what I said. No, that's not true. Also, uh, <laughs> for I know some people have been following uh, hashtag X Files Watch on Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, if if you have any X Files questions, if you have any X Files comments, now is the time. Now is the time to send them in, uh, and we can we can maybe fit them into our review a little bit. Perhaps. Uh, so if anybody wants to do that, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also reach us at our social media at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. And you can read my reviews that I do bi-weekly over at the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movies. That'll take you to the movie archives, the movie review archives. Um, and you can also follow me individually on Twitter by looking up VC Cassidy on Twitter or Instagram. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whichever is your favorite podcatcher of choice, uh, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Um, we're available on all of those, and Pocket Casts, Player.fm, whatever. Um, Keith, what is your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow me on uh, for my art account on Instagram uh, at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Okay, and that is it. It's time to cut out the cancer. Bye.